You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, and my colleague, Sam Ball. So this week, we, we're going to be discussing ASOS, Tritax Big Box REIT, Rathbones, and Disney. So to start, ASOS, we've got the full year results in, and they've more than quadrupled their profits this year after lockdown with a boom in online shopping. Sales are up 19% to $3.26 billion, and the pre-tax profits are up massively on last year to $142 million from $33 million. But despite the increase in profits, the shares were down 10%. What's your take on this, Sam? I thought it was quite solid. I've never looked at it properly before, but I was quite surprised by how diversified it was in terms of like yeah. how, what proportion of the sales come from different parts of the globe. So do you want to just expand on that a bit more? To me, I, I would always assume that ASOS was mostly UK based, which which it is, but it has operations in Europe and to some degree the US now as well. Yeah. So in the the year they've just released the results for in the UK, retail sales were up 18% to 1.2 billion. For Europe, excluding the UK, sales were up 22% to 1 billion. So that's only 200 million lower than the UK sales. US sales are up 16% to 401.9 million. So that's about a third of the UK sales. And then rest of the world is up 18% to 587.9 million, so about half the UK sales. Yeah, so UK sales, they only actually make up probably about 37% of total sales. I assume they're growing their operations in Europe and the US more quickly than the UK. They're not, actually. So Europe's growing the highest at 22%. UK and the rest of the world are 18 and US is actually only at 16% growth. They described yeah. it as disappointing. Yeah. Said US consumers have felt less financially supported than their European peers. I don't know whether or not that's true. I probably don't know enough about the financial support that they've had in the US, but my understanding was they've all no. been getting free money as well. The chief executive, Nick Baton, he'd come out and sort of made a few comments on these things and a few words of caution, you know, that without a vaccine, with increasing lockdowns uh, globally, and with no obvious sort of quick return to, you know, normal social events, and potentially more unemployment in the 20-somethings who tend to be ASOS's sort of target market, that the sales might suffer going forward. They are still growing. I guess the US is probably the most telling sign of what you said, because they've actually actually said that they had an inability to get products into the US because of the restricted air travel. Yeah, and whether that's going to get any easier or, you know, more difficult going forward is, you know, not clear at the moment. I noticed they had started a new budget range, sort of with recession and sort of growth potentially being limited going forward in the current sort of global pandemic called As You. So in the UK, I think it was items between about eight and 28 pounds. And they were looking to expand into things like sportswear, casual clothes, but they had a lower markup than their, you know, traditional going out clothes that they sold so much of before. Yeah, so they actually said the, so for the year, average basket value rose 1% to £71.92. But that Mm. there was an increase 
although yep. although there was an increased number of items per order that was mostly offset by lower average prices so they said that would reflected yep. lockdown meaning people were switching to stuff like i guess tracksuit bottoms and that sort of stuff where you're wearing it in the house yes yeah yeah, yeah 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 exactly that's right that's right and i think they'd also mentioned that their returns that had fallen massively so their profits had gone up a lot as a result of people not returning items that they'd ordered but presumably if people are buying less clothes to go out in fewer cocktail dresses all of that then you'd assume that that's going to sort of stabilize and it's not going to be the same sort of growth that they were having from those areas before and this was just sort of a short-term benefit that they'd had from lockdown. I noticed as well that last year they finished with net debt of 90.5 million compared mm. to net, ca- net cash of 407.5 million this year. Although that, that yeah. did include 239 million of proceeds from a capital raise. Yeah. And when was that capital raise? That was early. Was that April, March, April time? Yeah, it was April. Yeah, to deal with coronavirus. They would have increased cash without the capital raise. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they, um, they said that was also down to better stock management. Yeah, and they I believe they've sort of, they had some problems with the warehouses in the last few years, um, but they've made investments in those and trying to increase efficiencies. Yeah, so it seems to have come, it seems to be coming through now. So I saw the operating margins as well. They were below 1% fairly recently, and they're now at 4.6% which is still behind the average, but it's it's a big increase. It's a big increase. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think in terms of the valuation of the business at the moment? So they're currently trading at a 12-month forward PE ratio of 47 compared to a 10-year average of 54. So they probably are lower than they've historically been. I've not followed the company massively for the last few years but i would expect that growth rate did used to be higher yes yeah so i think if you're comparing the pe to the historical average it's going to look cheaper than it possibly is in reality because that growth rate i would expect it's slowing i mean but then again if you know it's what was it 18 percent overall was it it yeah 18 19 percent overall it does have earnings and if those earnings are growing at 19 percent a year that's yeah, oh, it, it's all right, it's, I guess. But it's I, all right, and in the UK, it's you know one of our, I suppose, one of our bigger growth companies. Yeah, it is. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's what is it valued at? About five billion it's, now. Yeah, I think the market cap just under five billion. Yeah, about four. Yeah, four point eight five billion. I mean, we did ASOS a few weeks ago, and I thought ASOS was a better business, to be honest. Yeah, and that was not much more expensive, if I remember. It was about the same market cap. About the same. I think yeah. it was about half the sales, but the growth rate, I think it was close to 50%. It's close. Okay. okay. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd probably rather pay up for the larger growth, to be honest. Yeah. No, I think that's... I, I would uh, agree with you on that. And they've had the shares as well. They've been on a bit of a roller coaster the last few years. <laughs> uh, so they were at about £30 in 2015, yeah, and they're up to they're up at forty six pounds now, so about a fifty percent increase in five years. But in twenty eighteen, they were actually as high as about seventy pounds, and they dropped. Mm. They dropped to about twelve pounds fifty. Fairly no, recently. What was that? Yeah, I wasn't following the company uh, closely then. What was the reason for that drop? 
well it was it was march so i'd say that's the uh, reason okay it was it was very it was very very quick at third of march it was still about 29 pounds a share by the 19th mm-hmm. it was 13 pounds a share and then by 15th of april it was back at 22 pounds a share and it's, it's just been slowly climbing since so actually it got as high as 53 pounds a share until and these results re- came out actually yeah and what's it returned over the last five years over the last five years about 50 percent if you'd invested at the march lows you'd be up about probably 4x okay so i mean i'm looking at boohoo and i know we discussed it like you said a couple of weeks ago that the market cap of that is it it is smaller it's about 3.9 billion so not but not not uh, significantly and yeah the last five years it's been growing much more quickly it's done about eight and a half times uh, over the last five years but like you say it's, it is a more expensive company but not significantly it's priced to earnings 52 compared with the forwards of was it 45 47 47 47, 47 yeah but so. I, I just think if those are quite those are surprisingly similar actually and i just think you know if it's if one's growing at 50 percent a year and the other's growing at 19 you know, it doesn't yeah. take it doesn't take the one growing at fifty long to grow into that valuation, and you know, within two three years, that PE, if the share price doesn't change, that PE starts to look very very cheap. Whereas yeah. when it's growing at nineteen, it probably takes a few more years before it actually starts to look cheap. So, I I definitely yes, yeah. and I definitely prefer Boohoo. I think. Yeah. No. Agreed. There. But All I, right. I, I actually I probably wouldn't buy either though. That being said, just. <laughs> It is so competitive, though, because they are they are both very well run businesses. And but you know, yeah. they, do, would do, would you have any particular loyalty to ASOS over Boohoo, or would you just go? I mean, I haven't shopped on either, so I couldn't tell you. But I doubt it. I wouldn't imagine <laughs> yeah. there's a huge amount of loyalty. I think people will go wherever that wherever's cheapest, really. Yeah, yeah, cheapest yeah. fast fashion. Yeah, and best, right. best best range available. So big box read, Sam. Yes. This is one of yours. Yes, Tritax Big Box REIT. So they are a real estate investment trust, which for anyone who doesn't know, it means they just go out, buy a load of property, collect the rents, and I think they're legally obliged to, they, they get some tax-exempt status, and as a result, they don't have to pay corporation tax, I think, off the top of my head, but that's conditional on them paying out, I think it's either 80 or 90% of their earnings as dividends. And then the dividends are taxable on the investors instead. That's the way it works. So, but they, they are quite popular REITs just because the yields tend to be quite high. It's not uncommon to get about a 4 or 5% yield, but you're probably not yeah. going to get a huge amount of capital growth. So Tritex Big Box REIT, what they do is they mainly invest in your distribution centers, really. So these massive industrial units situated near motorways, and the idea is that an Amazon or someone like that will come and buy it as a, or rent it as a distribution center and you get this long-term source of rent. It's very, very difficult for the customer to move because once they're using a distribution center, it's, it, it is very, very difficult to move away from it. There's very few buildings of that size, which gives them a lot of pricing power as well. So unlike most REITs, which have been hammered by like the, you know, the shutdown of shops, Tritax is actually doing incredibly well so they've just you would be on the back of the the e-commerce and the yes. sort of the growth yes. in e-commerce yeah so so they were they were doing fine anyway but then going into covid all of their clients are generally the companies that have benefited from covid rather than being hindered by it so it's it's actually if anything probably demand increase the demand for their units 
So they've recently announced that they've collected 89% of third quarter rents to date, and they expect to collect 99% by the end of November. So, and they also actually expect to collect the remaining 1% within the mm. near term. So they're expecting to collect 100% of their rents, which I think we covered British Lanco last week. Last yeah. week, and you know, they, although their numbers were decent, they weren't near 100%. And for the, I think, I think it was a retail in London, it was about 18% or something like that. That's just... right. And going forward, you'd think it was going to be yeah much more precarious yeah. for a uh, uh, REIT like uh, British Lanco yeah. in comparison. With whereas you know this, whereas for this one, the, the outlook looks quite rosy. Um, so they've also announced a dividend of one point six p a share. So and just, what does that work out at roughly? So they are trading at about one pound sixty five a share. So if you get four dividends a year of one point six p, you're looking at about just under a four percent yield at the current share price, which is very respectable. It's very respectable, and it's also very secure. I think that's what you you are yeah. paying up for. So historically, it's actually traded at a price to book of zero point nine six which I, th- I think it's fairly normal for REITs to trade a little bit under book value. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's currently trading at 1.08, so it's actually trading at higher than the book value. So I don't know if, I think people are just willing to pay up the quality, really. The prospective dividend yield is actually 4.1%, though, rather than the 3.8 based on the current share price. I think it's a quality company. I think if, if And I was would going- make up part of your portfolio for some stable income. I think so. I think if you're looking to diversify and get a bit more income or get a bit more property exposure, if you don't have the money to go out and buy a property, I think if I was going to add a REIT to my portfolio tomorrow, it, yeah. it would be Tritax without a doubt. I wouldn't really be too concerned about paying over the book just because I think that dividend is so secure. It's a well-run business. So yeah, it's, it's said as well, they've, they've recently moved away from just collecting rents and they're increasingly more in development as well. It's difficult for them to do that because they are subject to having to distribute so much of their earnings. So the way they've been doing that is they've been selling older units and then they've been investing that in newer ones. So that's where they've been trying to do it. So there's there's maybe some argument that you could get some capital growth or that it could lead to higher income in the future. But I think really you are buying it for the income. You're buying, yeah, of course, of course. But yeah, I I think it's a I think it's a quality business. Um, yeah. I think certainly. Is it one you'd be interested in adding to the watch list? Um, yeah, it probably would be actually. I don't have any real uh, real estate investment trust, so I would. I probably would be looking to add one, and that would be one that would, um, yeah, be on the watch list for sure. Compared to British Lanco, which we covered last week, I think. Yes. If I was yeah, buying one yeah. tomorrow, it wouldn't be a contest. No, no, that that's right. I had looked some years ago at um, another one, which was primary health properties, which was essentially GP surgeries. I think some, maybe some physiotherapists and that, that was quite attractive. And again, it was quite secure in the sense that it sort of customer was essentially the NHS. So it was sort of underwritten by the government and that I found quite attractive i haven't looked at it in a number of years it did come under a little bit of threat i think around the last election and whether those sorts of premises would be nationalized but since then i haven't particularly had any uh, reits on my watch list i've got another one on my watch list which is foresight solar fund so they just go out and they buy these solar farms so it's mainly the uk okay. i think it's, they might have it's a uk I've, one 
Yeah, it's UK. I think they might oh, have they might have some in Australia as well. I think from memory. So that's another one where it's, it's maybe about a four or five percent yield. That's it's quite that's quite attractive because a lot of the a lot of the money they get it's actually almost guaranteed by the government because of the subsidies. Yeah. I think I don't own it, so this is just from memory. But that that's another one that's on my watch list. But again, it's it's one where if I was if I was to look at REITs, I wouldn't I wouldn't want ones with any exposure to retail really. And even offices now, and I'm not even sure I'd want exposure to that. So it's it would offices, be, yeah, it would be REITs and these almost, for want of a better term, like alternative properties where it's not your traditional offices. And yeah, no, that that that's right. And like you say, with big box, it's on the back of the e-commerce, which only seems to be going one way at the moment. Yeah. So if if their rent prices are going to be changing, they're probably only going to be moving in one direction. That's right. That's right. All right. Okay. So next on the list. Yes. So do you want to do Rathbone Brothers next? So Rathbone Brothers, third quarter results are out and they report a 0.2% improvement in their funds under management to a total of 50.2 billion. So two different parts of the business. It's got 41.8 billion in its investment management business, which is down a little bit from 2019, where it had 43 billion but it's got its unit trust management side, which is actually up. So that's last year, it was uh, 7.4 billion. And now that's up to 8.7. And the total net inflows across both investment management and the trust were about 300 million. So it's representing approximately 2.2% in growth. It has had some outflows of about 800 million. But overall, it's Total net operating income came in as 87 million for the three months ending September, which makes for an annual increase of 0.8%. It also managed to increase its investment management fees, being up 1.4% on the year for the quarter. Uh, and the commission income improved to about 4.4%, which totals 11, about 11, nearly 12 million. What do you think of Rathbones as a business, Sam? I really like it. I think it looks very attractive at the minute. It does It does look like it's quite well run and management are doing a, a good job. The only thing I would say is that most of the investment managers look very attractive right now. So you're talking Hargreaves, Lansdowne, um, Schroders, AJ uh, Bell. Yeah, Brewing Dolphin. I mean, they're all, they're all at quite low price to earnings. They use, I think most, Hargreaves is a bit higher and AJ Bell because they're, they're growing more, but they're usually at a PE ratio in the teens and they've usually got a dividend yield of about four or five percent, I think. Like that's just the case across the board, really. If you want to get a good return from a financial manager, the best way is probably to invest in them, to be honest. Just... <laughs> yeah, you, you certainly don't think you'll be beating the market with one of their ready-made portfolios. I think you'd have a better chance genuinely of beating the market by buying their shares. Buying their shares. I and how sustainable do you think that is, really? So this figure's a bit old. It's October 19. But hey, Rathbone's only had 2.5% market share of the wealth management market. In the so, UK, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think they do they do have a lot of room for growth. If you look at the financial performance for the previous five years as well, I think everything, you know, I mean, it's not jaw-dropping growth, but it's moving in the right direction. It is moving positively. So in 2015, the revenue was 229 million and year ended 31 December, 2019, it was up to 348 million with profit for the period 
it was it, it was pretty flat actually but i think as long as they can continue to grow funds under management eventually they will be able to monetize that yeah and do you think there's going to be a shift more towards i suppose index passive investing um using platforms which have incredibly low fees like vanguard and products from blackrock rather than these maybe more traditional wealth managers like backbones I think there should be. I think whether or not there will be is a different thing because Vanguard, they're not exactly a new kid on the block. They've been around for years. And I think it's it's, diff- it's it's frustrating, I think, with a lot of people because they don't, you know, if they could read one book on investing, decide they're going to index and they'd probably beat any wealth manager. And they'd probably beat their performance with much lower fees by using a Vanguard. But most yeah. people don't. I think a lot of people that have a lot of money, they don't. they almost think it's this difficult subject and they need to, they need to pass it over to an expert. I think, you know, if if you're ill, you see a doctor. If you need legal advice, you see a lawyer. And I think it's almost ingrained into people that if they want to manage their money, they need to go and see a professional. So I think there's probably always going to be a role, even though index funds will probably continue to outperform them. What do you think yeah. of that? So this sort of, uh, no, I think that's that's probably a fairly accurate assessment. I think there's sort of uh, a, a psychological barrier to people managing their own uh, investments, e- even if it is in the form of index funds with companies like Vanguard, and that if they trust the brands, whether that's Rathbones, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, they have, you know, their advisor who or their IFA who comes round in a slick business suit and talks about the, the products. They have a nice brochure. I think that probably does have a big impact on people and they have the trust in these businesses to manage their wealth, even if in the long term it potentially underperforms the index. Yeah, and I think some people, they probably like, even if you explained it to them, they probably, they'd probably come back and say, oh, they like paying for the peace of mind. I think that's part of it. Because so I think there'll always be a role. And I think I'd expect the sector to continue to grow, if anything. Whether or not it'll lose market share to passives is another thing. But I think it will continue to grow. Yeah, because I suppose one of, one of the, the arguments with some of these uh, wealth managers is that you might have, essentially, you're paying for active, but you're getting a closet tracker with more fees. Yeah, probably. I think um, that's. Uh, I mean, I. I whether there's any more regulation um, over that and selling potentially the products that they do sell, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think with a lot of these, I think if you went and you went and gave them your money, I think they, a lot of them, they'll just put you in lots of different funds, and at that point, when you're in that many different funds, you 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 will not outperform the market. It's just not going to happen. So the best you can do at that point is to match the market, which they're probably not going to do. And then yeah. you're matching the market, but you're paying the higher fees. So yeah. you, you you almost get the situation where you are you are virtually guaranteed to underperform the market. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but you know, I suppose a lot of clients may say, well, if you beat inflation, I'm not interested. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like like I say, I think some people, if if it's some if it's some old dear and her husband's died and he's left her a load of money, she doesn't want to she doesn't know what to do with it. She just wants to get the income from it. She she probably doesn't care about learning about index investing. She just wants someone who's going to give her an income and preserve it for the next generation. And I think if she goes to yeah. an IFA and she doesn't mind paying like the two percent a year or one percent a year, I think that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. It's diff- so, it different things work for different people. If she was twenty or thirty different- years old, I'd probably say, well, it's, it's probably worth taking the time to learn it. Yeah, it's, everyone's got different circumstances. Yeah. Um, and it's probably the- you know it's it's probably still better than doing nothing. Oh, it's absolutely better than doing nothing. I would say. 
just yeah i think we, we we may be heading for negative interest rates in the uk possibly anyway we've gone off on a bit of a tangent criticizing yeah, so, the whole industry instead of talking no. about the business so what, what do, you, do you is it is it a, a company that you buy into it is a company that i probably already would have bought if it wasn't for the fact that i owned hargreaves lansdowne I've probably got a few more stocks that would count as financial. So I've got RBS as well and Money Supermarket, which is technically a bit of a financial. If you included all those as financial, I'm probably already quite heavily weighted towards financial. Okay. So that is the only reason I haven't added it. Um, yeah. So it's more a balance of the portfolio rather yeah. than... Yeah. So when I'm yeah. adding stocks, I'm thinking, do I want another financial? If my portfolio got to the point where I thought, oh, I could have another financial in there, I probably would go for Rathbones. I think Schroders is quite attractively priced at the minute as well, but Schroders is the larger company. So that's probably why I'd pick Rathbones. It's currently got a market cap of 866 million Dividend yield, 4.64%. I'll just use the 2019 earnings per share. And if we just think of that as, let's just call that normalized earnings. Earnings per share last year were 50p. It's currently trading at £15 a share. So that would actually put it at around 30 times earnings, which is quite expensive, so that can't be right. So those were the earnings, but there was a significant drop last year. Okay, so profits were down last year because of an acquisition that was working its way through the account. So that's not really that's it's that's distort, not, it's distorted. It's distorted it yeah. So they've actually given an adjusted earnings per share, which they've put. I think that's too high as well, though, because they've they've given an adjusted earnings per share every year that's like significantly higher than the actual. <laughs> um, but if we use if we instead use the twenty eighteen figures normalized earnings on the basis that that acquisition has now worked its way through the accounts, so that'd be eighty eight p a share instead. So that would put it at a normalized p ratio of about seventeen, I'd say. Which is, is pretty reasonable. And I think, like I say, if you look at the financials, if you look at the growth, I think that's more than a reasonable for a company that has increased revenue 52% in five years. Very respectable. It, compared with its competitors, you mentioned Schroders. Yeah, so Schroders, Schroders is another interesting company. I think it's, again, it's, it's trading at quite an attractive valuation, but it's, it's the bigger company. Schroders has a market cap of 7.74 billion, so it's about 10 times the size. According to Hargreaves Lansdowne, it's trading at a PE of 13.86. I don't know what the impacts of COVID would be. As long yeah. as the assets under management is stable, which certainly in Rathbone's yeah. case, it has been. I know for Hargreaves Lansdowne, I think I think it's, it's stayed around the same level. It might have increased slightly, but none of them are really dropping. Yeah. I think if, if that sort of 20% no. drop that we had in March had been sustained or carried on, then they probably would have had much lower earnings because of the hit on assets under management. But I think yeah. they're all looking quite attractive, really. The companies in that broader sector that seem to be growing are your plus 500s, your com- your trading companies, uh, CFDs and all of that that have sort of benefited from people playing the markets during lockdown and the pandemic so far. Rathbone said their commissions for the third quarter were 39.5% lower than in the second quarter which they said reflected a return to more normalized levels of client trading after the market volatility in the first half resulted in elevated trading volumes. Okay, so they obviously benefit from the fees as a result of the increased trading. 
Yeah, I'd be interested half, to yeah. know how many of those people were selling rather than buying, though. Yeah, that's yeah, that, no, that, that's right, that's right. I mean, it, it sounds like the outflows weren't massive. Yeah. They did have a net increase in assets and yeah. management. Yeah, so you would assume that it's gone uh, the right way from their point of view. It's probably not going to be a multi-bagger, but I, I think it looks like a quality business. It's growing nicely. Yeah. It's got a good dividend yield. I think even if you don't like this particular one, I think it's certainly worth considering adding a wealth manager to the portfolio. I think it's quite a nice, well-run, stable business. I think the main risk that they they have is a probably a recession or a depression, just because if you see a sustained fall in share prices that don't bounce back in the way that shares have so far, I know that the FTSE is still down, but a lot of shares have bounced back. But if you saw a sustained drop over a couple of years, for example, that would hit the assets under management quite hard. It would probably also impact the performance. So you might have more clients withdrawing the money. So that's probably the biggest risk. But even that, it's not something they, you know, they've been through recessions before and they'll go through them again. So yeah. I think it's I think it's a quality business. What do you think? No, I'd agree with you. Um, it's one I'd certainly watch. Whether I'd invest at the moment, possibly not. But yeah, I think very much I agree with you. Going on the watch list and uh, one one to consider. Do you think you'd be more interested in the largest larger Schroders, or would you prefer to go for the smaller one? I'd probably be be looking at Rathbones more than Schroders, and whether they might. Uh, you know, grow a little bit more, but it's a sector I haven't looked at all that much, quite honestly. I mean, they're all they're all quite interesting. I think Schroders is also. I think that's just because it's not probably not got as much room for growth as Rathbones. I still think it's a very attractively priced company. But yeah, I like them both. Yeah, great. All right. So Sam, Disney. Yes. So Disney have recently announced a restructuring of their business. Right. So, so what, what is what is this restructuring? So they've announced a new structure, which they say is designed to further accelerate the company's direct-to-consumer strategy in light of the rapid success of Disney+. Plus. Okay, and Disney+, Plus being, if for anybody who doesn't know, their online next Netflix-style streaming service. Yes, which launched in March and already has 60 million subscribers. Wow. Okay, so it, it, it's, it's launched with a boom. Yeah, I think they were hoping for like, from memory, I think they were maybe hoping for like high 20s or 30 million subscribers in the first year. I don't know if I okay. can that up, but that's, that's, I seem to recall that. Yeah, because I think Netflix has close to 200 billion and uh, Netflix being the market leader, it's 193 million. I mean, 60 million in your first year. I, I guess it, you'd argue how many of those 60 million, you know, have come on because they've offered it low for the first year and will they all renew and yeah, i mean I, I would have thought i would have thought if those 60 million people all have children and they've got access to the disney back catalog which is ginormous and you potentially well at least in the uk we've got a lot of lo- lockdowns going on i would have thought that a lot of those customers would stay on i agree it's a lot cheaper than netflix as well so i've actually got it and it's like so i paid I think it's £60 for the year, but I signed up in advance, so I got it for like 40 or something. When it goes to auto-renew in March and they just start billing me monthly, I think it's only going to be like £5 a month, whereas Netflix is like yeah. 11 or 12 or something like that. And they do have quality content, new quality new content that they're producing and putting directly onto Disney+. Plus. Mandalorian, um, 
part of the Star Wars franchise was one of the one of the big ones that they launched, and they're coming out with uh, a lot more as well. So they certainly it's not just the Disney back catalogue; it's everything going forward. Really? And like you say, they're going to be doing things straight to their streaming services. They don't have that much new stuff coming out, really. So they've been quite slow and controlled. And I think what they're doing is they're putting the back, they've just put the catalogue on. They've said, right, well, if you've got kids, you've got to get this. And then they're just doing a few very high, high quality productions like The Mandalorian. I think they are ramping it up. So there's going to be a few sort of like Marvel series. So like one of the guys who's Captain America's mates, he's getting one. I think think maybe like Loki's getting one as well, I think. So they're doing a few of those. But I think... I think it's quite clever because they're doing enough. I think they're probably doing just enough to keep you. You're always going to be staying because there's this new series coming along, but it's not like Netflix where there's a new series on there every day in full. There's a lower number and it's probably higher quality, higher quality, or certainly in terms of the brands they're using higher quality. I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily produced at high because Netflix is very, very good, but I think Netflix are quite happy to just throw a lot more stuff at you and they know some of it will stick. But I think they were, uh, certainly with The Mandalorian, they were spending, I don't know, was it 10 million an episode or something? So it was, yeah, it was sort of cinematic, really. No, Um, I I thought it was fantastic as well, The Mandalorian. I absolutely loved it. Um, Yeah, and the new season is out late this month, I believe. It is, yeah, it's starting this, but it's annoying though, because they do it weekly. Um, They do weeks. So so I (laughs) I waited all like eight weeks and then I binged it in one go. Like one sitting, I didn't. I didn't want to like have to wait a week for the next one. I wanted to treat it like a big film. Okay, okay. Um, anyway, and then they've, they've had uh, well on films. They've had Mulan, which is gone. St- well, it was due to be released in the cinema, and then due to lockdowns across the globe, they've decided to go direct to Disney Plus with that. But that's come with a premium fee on top of your subscription, but has gone direct to streaming rather than through the cinema. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how successful it was. I saw someone saying it probably wasn't that successful because they've not told us how it went. And also they've not announced plans to do it with anything else. I think it was very much a trial. I would like to see Mulan, but I certainly wouldn't have paid the $30 or whatever it was in pounds when I know that I can probably wait six months and they'll put it on there for free. That's right. And I suppose in some ways it's promotional for Disney Plus that they're with one of those big blockbuster films that's going straight to streaming. But obviously it wasn't designed initially to do that. And they have, I would imagine, taken a big hit at the box office as a result of it not going there first. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, so they've, like I said, they've reorganized and they've said under this new structure, Disney's world-class creative engines will focus on developing and producing original content for the company's streaming services, as well as for legacy platforms, while distribution and commercialization will be centralized into a single global media and entertainment distribution organization. The creation of content will be managed in three distinct groups, studios, general entertainment, and sports. And what do they have in terms of sports? Because I, I remember they have ESPN. I'm not sure what that shows over here. I think it's probably a bigger operation in the US. Yeah, it's, it's massive in America. So yeah, ESPN is pretty much the main one for sports. But yeah, ESPN, I don't know what the equivalent would be. Maybe like Sky Sports over here. Sky Sports here, yeah. And they also own, uh, have you heard of Hulu? I have, but I don't know much about it. They have a majority stake in that. That's probably more of a direct competitor to Netflix than Disney Plus is, where it's like it's doing more like adult content almost. 
apparently that's quite popular as well. So what they do in America is they actually bundle the three together, Disney plus Hulu and ESPN. It's national like Netflix sort of like they're putting the content on. So what they've been doing is you've got like the Disney plus say like for kids and you know, the box office quality stuff. You've got Hulu for like maybe the, the Netflix like stuff and ESPN oh, okay. for the sports. And they've been bundling right. it together in America. And I think they've been selling it as a bundle at a price is about the same as Netflix. Okay, so it's an app or a platform that you can use, whether it's on your computer or on your TV. Yeah, so it's like Amazon Prime yeah. or Netflix. I've never, like, yeah. I've never, I've never used it, but I have heard of it. Yeah, so they said the the studios division will be dealing with the theatrical and episodic content based on the company's powerhouse franchises for theatrical ep- exhibition. Disney Plus yeah. and the company's streaming services. General entertainment will be for more like general entertainment, episodic and long form content for the company's streaming platforms. And then sports is just ESPN. But it's interesting because this reshuffle is, is almost the first major thing that the new CEO, Bob Chapek, has done. Big change, yeah. Yeah, so Bob Iger, I think he's been in charge for about 15 years. And he, he stepped down literally just just before the pandemic really kicked in, I think. But he did a fantastic job. He was yeah. in charge of like the, he was in charge of the Marvel acquisition, I think. The Star Wars as well. He's really helped build it into what it is. I mean, going forward, obviously the theme park side of the business is under threat. How do you see the business going forward, given that the theme parks, we don't know when or what the new normal will be? Theme parks make up for, or normally they'd make up, I think just under 40% of revenue. Yeah. So it is a big, big factor. I think eventually people will return to the parks. They will go back to normal. I don't think one of the changes of COVID-19 long-term is going to be that people aren't prepared to shell out the life savings taking their kids to Disney World. I think (laughs) it's like the brand still has all the same power. I think that it had. But it is a problem short term, especially with the. Do you think that's priced in at the moment? Well, I don't know if it is now. I'll just get the share price up. Yeah, so it's uh, $127 at the minute. Its yearly high was $153. So it's not down that much, but the yearly low was about just under $80. It went under very briefly in March. It's valued at $230 billion. Yeah, I think the earnings were just over about $10 billion. So it was trading at about. If you look at it as a, on a normalized level, and I guess normalized is quite a strong, you know, it, it's difficult because you don't know how long the parks will be shut for, but it's maybe about 20, 20 to 25 times normalized earnings probably, which I think is very reasonable. I think when it's such a high quality business, I know it's all entertainment, but it's a very diversified business. And I think Disney Plus is very exciting. I think that's 60 million subscribers. I think it will continue to grow. And I think what I really like about Disney Plus is if you look at the Netflix model, they're spending so much money on content. They're having to, it's less of a problem now because of their size and their scale, but they had serious issues raising the cash to actually produce the content and they were having to take on quite a lot of debt. And mm. they, they do constantly need to be refreshing that. Whereas Disney's got almost this timeless library where it's got, you know, it can stick on cartoons from like the 50s and the 60s and kids will <laughs> still watch them now. And all they have to do is, like we said earlier, they just have to put a few new shows on every year. And so many people are coming for what's already there. They're not staying for what's coming as much, which I think is the case with Netflix. So I think they will be able to have be much more profitable much early on. And I think they'll have much lower costs of actually maintaining it. Because for me, for example, they probably only need three or four high quality shows a year to justify me staying around. 
Yeah, I, the, same with me. I, I mean, I'm also on Disney Plus. Yeah, and I think the shows that I will watch, most other people will watch. It would be something. Any shows that set in the Star Wars universe, I will watch it. <laughs> most of the shows they could do that would be set in the Marvel universe, I would also watch. So they only need a few of those on at a time, and I'm not gonna. I'm just not gonna. I'm not gonna stop subscribing, basically. And I think with Netflix, <laughs> they need to be constantly putting out good stuff for me to carry on subscribing. If I felt yeah. like there was a dip in the quality, I probably would think about getting rid of it. And yeah, I think yeah. it just it just makes it such a more attractive proposition because you've got those 60 million people that are going to be paying, let's call it like five pounds a month on average. Yeah. And that whole five pounds a month or virtually, I think such a large proportion of it, it just goes straight to profit, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like you say, with the back catalogue that they yeah. have. Yeah, so assuming it stopped growing, if you had 60 million people paying on average five pounds a month, that's 3.6 billion that's pounds a year that just goes straight to the bottom line. Yeah. Assuming most of it does. So like, you know, even at the current levels, you know, I don't know what the actual, so let's, let's call it 3.6 billion. Let's say they have to spend 600 million a year on creating content for it. You know, that's, that's a 30% increase in earnings. And that, that might be quite ambitious, but I think, you know, if they continue to grow, say they get to hundred million subscribers, even if it's only able to add sort of two or 3 billion a year, because that's so much of it, I think will be profit. I'd say it's undervalued at the minute. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one I like um, yeah. and that I have. <laughs> I think if, if you well, if you say on a normal year, so it's currently trading, let's say at like twenty-three times normal earnings, and those normal earnings have never included Disney Plus, and you think they can go back to normal, and that they're about ten billion long term, I think they can get to a point where they are getting earnings from Disney Plus of 5 billion a year. That's a 50% increase. And I don't think that's unreasonable. If you had 230 billion and it's suddenly making 15 billion a year instead of 10 billion, which I do think is not implausible in the next few years, that puts it at a PE of 15, which is incredibly cheap for the quality of the business. Is it one that you're going to be buying? It's on the watch list. It's one I'd certainly consider adding to. It's not something I'm planning to buy at the minute, but I do really, really like it. My my only the only reason I haven't bought it is because although you will get a good level of growth and I think you've got a good chance of getting market beating returns from it, it probably doesn't grow as much as the stocks I'd normally invest in in my US okay. portfolio. Okay. What do, you, like, what do you think? I mean, you obviously own it yourself. Yeah, I do, and I like it. I probably won't be topping up on it, but holding it for the long term. You're already up a good amount, aren't you? Uh, a fair amount. I mean, bought it, when would it have been? It was sort of probably about April time that I bought it. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, late, late April, I bought it when it was sort of down parks. I mean, that's sort of, we, we may, we may see them sort of shut fully again, but when they were shut down, so it was sort of, but like you say, it's the quality of the business and depends what the new normal is, but I'd be optimistic longer term that the parks would be re- reopening. Yeah. more content coming out on disney plus and um yeah prospects for growth very very positive in the longer term would you rather have disney on netflix well it's a good question i probably probably disney for me i'd go think, with disney yeah well netflix is actually a higher market cap than disney is it what, what's yeah. netflix uh, what's the market cap now it is 239 billion so it's nine billion wow. more than Disney. Wow. I'd rather have Disney. I think it'd be a bit yeah. of a brain. I think you know, Netflix. Netflix is probably always going to be making more 
it's probably going to make more than Disney Plus, but I think there's so many other elements of the business and it is such such a quality business. I think they should actually buy EA. I think that's what I'd do if I was in charge. Yeah, so going into the video games. Yeah, I, well, if you look at the games that EA have, I'd, I'd almost view them as like, almost like the Disney of video games, really, like with a lot of the franchises yeah. they've got. And they actually own the rights to the Star Wars video games, which oh yeah, so I, I think yeah. it'd be quite a good match there. But then some of the other video games they've got, I think they would fit well in the Disney universe. And I think it is just it'd yeah. be the merging of two quality companies. I think, and I think they could do two quite a lot with the yeah. EA brands. Yeah, that's why I do. Seems like a no-brainer to me. <laughs> so you're gonna let the chief executive know. Exactly. I'll write him a. I'll write him a letter. Yeah. You're a shareholder. Yeah. So if, if yeah, you go yeah. to the AGM next oh, year, I'll, I'll, I'll raise it. We can we can vote on it. <laughs> okay. So of the four businesses that we've talked about today, so Disney, yeah, Tritax, Big Box, Reet, Rathbones, and ASOS, yeah. Which one? If you had to buy one today, which one would you buy today? Well, as I already have Disney, I'd probably be interest in tritax for a reliable source of income very defensive over the next sort of couple of years and in the current environment I mean, that would probably be the one for me that i'd be adding to my portfolio at the moment okay i'd probably go with disney but with the caveat that i really like tritax and rathbones so i'd say of all of all the episodes we've done so far this is probably the one where i've, I've liked so many of the companies normally i just like one or two but i think three yeah. of the three of the four I'd, I'd i'd be happy to have them in my portfolio i think they all look yeah. like quality businesses and i know we mentioned asos earlier this episode but if it were in that sector in clothes retail i'd probably be more leaning towards boohoo that we had on a, a couple of weeks ago no i, I would as well yeah i, yeah. I thought I'd, I'd be willing to pay up for the growth of boohoo yeah boohoo um, okay. brilliant is there anything All else right, you well, want to talk about? Uh, no, I think we've covered a fair bit this week. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.